Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Marcia Langton at the University of Melbourne. Marcia is an Indigenous leader in Australia and I want to talk to her about her life and leadership and in particular women's leadership. But Marcia, I wanted to start by asking you if you were travelling overseas, which across across your life you've done a great deal and you met someone who knew absolutely nothing about Australia, how would you describe Indigenous Australia to them? The first thing to say in answer to that question is that most people don't understand that humans came to this continent at least 65,000 years ago and continued to come over many thousands of years. So I think if our species Homo sapiens sapiens is about 300,000 years old, which is what the science tells us at this stage, then Aboriginal Australia inherits a huge proportion of human history and it's a unique human history in that our population today are the descendants of people who've lived in this country for more than six millennia and actually created much of what we think of as wilderness in that Aboriginal people across the continent created what Bill Gamage calls a continent-wide land management system with fire. And the purpose of that was to control the wildfires and to carve out human society in a highly fire-prone continent. And of course, during those six millennia, Aboriginal people have survived at least one ice age, the drying up of the continent, the rising of the sea levels. And the other thing I would say is that people seem to think that, especially in Europe I've noticed, and also in Asia, that Aboriginal people are primitive or savages. And that's far from the truth. Aboriginal people have oral histories, for instance, of the rising of the sea levels. And three geographers have studied the recorded 
oral histories of Aboriginal people at about 20 coastal locales around the continent and demonstrated how these oral histories are in fact very accurate records of what happened as the seas rose. The other thing is that Aboriginal people have, for instance, not just Indigenous knowledge systems about land management, and especially fire and water, but also astronomy. So we have here at the University of Melbourne an astronomer, Dwayne Hummaker, whose website, aboriginalastronomy.com.au, is a compilation of the scholarship of astronomers and astrophysicists working with Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders on their knowledge systems of the celestial bodies. And it's quite extraordinary. So, for instance, one paper is called, Yes, Aboriginal People Did Know About the Variability of Betelgeuse. So I regard it as part of my duty to translate good science and social science into a popular form so that people understand the actual legacy of having this unique phenomena of a population that is descended from humans who arrived here over six millennia ago. So the longest civilization in one place anywhere on the planet. And what does leadership mean for for you against that backdrop of history? I don't think of myself as a leader. The media call me a leader. I don't lead anybody, in fact, except for my dogs on a a leash. (laughs) I would prefer that I be be regarded as a public intellectual. And I'm a particular kind of public intellectual. So I've had the advantage of a very good education, which was hard won. And I have had the ability, I think, to communicate difficult information in a way that people understand. So I find younger generations, people much younger than me, saying things that they think is self-evident and has always been a part of human knowledge, whereas in fact, you know, I published it a quarter of a century ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. And that makes me happy to think that, you know, young people now just regard as accepted fact something that myself or my colleagues put into the public domain in our publications, in our scholarship, in our lifetimes. You know, that's, that's an achievement, It's a remarkable achievement, and I want to talk to you about that hard-won education that has led you to be a public intellectual. Uh, You grew up in the 1950s in Queensland and regional Australia, and you've described your experience of school as a place where old-fashioned racism was the order of the day. Given that, how did you win through to, you know, survive, not just survive, but thrive and do so well in terms of your own education? Well, the main strategy was uh, reading books. I found school libraries and public libraries at a very early age. And I can't remember when I first started to read. I certainly started to read before I started school. I became fascinated by all the signs and images around me and I was compelled to decode them. And, you know, I love to draw and I eventually... I think pretty much taught myself to read and I read books and learned how to take books out of the library from a young age. So that was strategy number one. Strategy number two was 
Well, I was brought up in a particular way, a very old-fashioned Aboriginal way. Children were taught in my, amongst my people not to speak to adults and certainly not to be cheeky or to speak back at adults. There were very strict rules. So I could live in a world of silence. And so when I wasn't going to school, doing chores, you know, sitting around the fire or at the dinner table, I would go into the bush and sit under a tree and often in a tree. I would pick my favourite tree and sit in a tree and read a book. So I think having time to myself in the bush and to think about all that had happened during the day and to think about interactions that I didn't understand. Some teachers were very cruel. Some of my fellow students were very cruel. And it required me to think about it because I had no defences. So I think I became an intellectual in grade one. (laughs) (laughs) So with the silence and the scholarship and trying to think about racism and your treatment, not that you would have used those words then. No, I didn't hear the word racism until the late 1960s. So there were no words for me. I didn't know of any words that described my encounters. So, you know, I didn't hear the, the word sexism or feminism until the early 70s. And your childhood included some moments of real hardship. I mean, there was a period of time when you were in an orphanage. There was a period of time when you were living in a tent on the edge of Brisbane. When you were living that experience, did it feel like hardship or does it feel more like hardship now looking back on it when you know that many other people's childhoods are far more privileged? No, I didn't think of any of those experiences as as hardship. But when I look back on some of my responses, I, I realised that I had childish, if you like, or juvenile responses to great trauma. And I think I was fortunate in that because I read, because I was able to feel very comfortable in my own bones and be silent and alone, I could tolerate what most people would be severely traumatised by, I think. Certainly, you know, I have my own levels of PTSD, but much of it comes later in life. I'm not sure that young people in Australia today realise what Queensland was like in the 1950s, and it's almost impossible to describe. And there are not really any good histories of Queensland in the 1950s. There are some good novels, I suppose, but Queensland was... uh, administered by extremely conservative governments and the legislation dated from the 19th century, much of it. I mean, of course, there'd been new legislation in the 20th century, but of course, Queensland was the home of the white Australia labour policy. And I remember when we finally ended up in a house in Brisbane, I got a secondhand wardrobe and in the back of the wardrobe, emblazoned on the timber, was a sign that said, made by white labour only. So I remember staring at that and thinking, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, white people, okay. Why would you make a declaration about the wardrobe being made only by white people? And so all of these questions began to stack up as I came across you know, these signs of racism that I didn't understand as a child 
but which were absolutely normalised in Queensland. And one day I'll have to write the book about that highly normalised state of segregation, which was breaking down slowly, little bit by little bit in my childhood, but which really was a formal legislative system of of segregation until 1984 in Queensland. You came through your childhood and went to the University of Queensland, so clearly an intelligent young woman. You'd done so much reading. You'd got yourself through school. And for many, getting to go to university would have seemed like an incredible challenge that had been acquitted. Yet you, at the age of 18, already a mother, packed your bags and went on a five-year trip around the world with your young child. So what made you embark on such an extraordinary journey? It was simply that I had been going to demonstrations and organising Aboriginal resistance to some of the worst policies in Queensland. And the police raided my house every Saturday morning, very early in the morning. And one of them threatened to kill my baby. So I think I thought, well, it's time to leave. Mm. (laughs) The Queensland police at that time, and I think remain so, were extremely violent towards Aboriginal people in a way that was kind of systemic. And they regarded it almost as their responsibility to be their public duty, to be cruel and vicious and violent towards Aboriginal people. And the violence was so bad that that too was normalised. So again, all I can say is it's difficult to describe You'll remember the Queensland police sending in the SWAT teams to Palm Island, terrorising the population, terrorising the children, heavily armed SWAT teams, for which there was a very heavy court-ordered compensation payment to the Palm Island community. But in my childhood, there was no justice whatsoever. And I think the court ordered compensation to the Palm Islanders for that event, which was very recent, was the first, in my experience, the first act of justice that brought the police to Brook. But of course, that didn't stop them. That has not stopped them. The violence continues. I mean, just a few days ago, the police in Mount Isa punched an Aboriginal child in the face. So, as I say, it continues. In this period, though, you did have to, as you've explained, get overseas for your own safety and concerns about the safety of your child. It sounds like it was a remarkable trip. It took you to Japan, where you encountered Buddhism, to making scarves and selling them on the streets of Hong Kong, to escaping from people traffickers in New York. When you look back on that now, is it with a sense of wonder that you ever had the courage to do it? No, it was much easier back then to travel. In fact, I encountered Buddhism in Taiwan on a bus. Yeah. On a bus? Yeah. (laughs) A bus Buddhist. (laughs) I was sitting next to a monk in a very dangerous bus trip and he laughed all the way. And then, of course, I did encounter another kind of Buddhism and it became very interesting to me. And, of course, uh, I have to say I encountered feminism in Tokyo on a train. An American. There's a theme here. Yeah. Buses, trains. Yes. So I met a lot of interesting people and my eyes were opened. The wonderful thing back then was that Asia had a huge 
black market in books. So all of the great literature was published in copies and you could buy them on the streets and they were so cheap. You know, they were the equivalent now of, say, five cents. And I would buy stacks of books and when I was travelling, read. So I read most of the 20th century up until that point. I read some 19th century literature. It was possible to read absolutely everything by going to a market in Hong Kong or Taipei, as it is today in India. You know, if you want to, if you want to read books, go to a book fair in India today and uh, travel on a train. That's what Indians do. <laughs> you can read the world's history if you can read enough languages. And tell us about uh, encountering feminism on a train. A blonde, tall American woman insisted on telling me about feminism. She was kind of a missionary for feminism in Tokyo. It was an eye-opener. Wow. It was fascinating. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible. You returned to Australia and you studied anthropology at the Australian National University and you were the first Indigenous student to get honours in anthropology at ANU. Possibly. There may have been other Aboriginal people who didn't identify as such, but of course... In today's terms, they wouldn't be recognised as Aboriginal people. I think many Aboriginal people went through the university system and in order to avoid the racism did not identify. But I was the first self-identifying <laughs> Aboriginal person to get an honours degree, yes. And you went on to work in all sorts of areas you've talked about and the theme across all of your work has been about Aboriginal empowerment, land rights, telling us the history, explaining the stories... You've done that now for decades. When you look across those decades, how much change has there been? How much better is it? How much worse is it? What more do we need to do? Well, if I could just choose one area to demonstrate the slow pace of change. I worked in 1989 and 1990 for the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody. I went to many communities in the Northern Territory to fulfil my brief, which was to provide evidence to the National Commissioner and the Commissioners on the underlying issues contributing to Aboriginal deaths in custody. I produced a report with a fabulous team of people. Our report was called Too Much Sorry Business, which is Creole or Aboriginal English for too many funerals. And I then worked in the last stages, I worked with the National Commission in Adelaide writing the five-volume national report. There were almost 400 recommendations, the first one of which was that arrest and imprisonment should be a last resort. That's still not the case. And although there have been some very good attempts to implement the recommendations of the Commission through Aboriginal Justice Advisory Committees... By and large, the institutions such as the police force, the courts, the social services have not bothered to maintain an awareness of those recommendations and by and large have not implemented those recommendations. And so today, the rates of arrest and imprisonment of Aboriginal people are far, far worse than when I first encountered them. Actually, before the Royal Commission, I wrote my honours thesis on Aboriginal swearing and fighting, motivated by what was then the first recorded 
data on the rates of arrest and imprisonment of Aboriginal people in New South Wales and largely for swearing at police. Right. How much frustration do you feel about that slow pace of change? My sense is that through your public voice as an intellectual, through your writings, there is this burning sense of of frustration that you wish uh, that the politics was more conducive to change, the community dialogue was more conducive to change. How do you feel about that? How do you live that today? Well, yeah, frustration is probably an understatement. I cannot explain why Australians think that it is acceptable that 100% of the children in detention in juvenile justice centres in the Northern Territory are Aboriginal and why they are treated the way they are with brutality, violence, contempt for their rights, all of which has been shown on television, all of which has been the subject of a royal commission into the Dondale Detention Centre, and still the Northern Territory Government refuses to implement the recommendations of that royal commission. So I just can't explain why Australians think that it's acceptable to treat Aboriginal people and especially Aboriginal children in the way that we see. It's blatant, it's obvious, it's televised, you can't deny it. In the 1950s, the police could deny murdering Aboriginal people. They could deny the extreme forms of brutality. Today, nobody can deny it. It's been televised, and yet it's still acceptable. I find that to call it racism is really a pathetic response to a systemic injustice that ought to be shameful to Australians. And you've been trying to for many years now, put a spotlight on on this shame and get Australia to look at it and address it. You're the foundation chair at the University of Melbourne of Australian Indigenous Studies, and you've been that since February 2000, and then you became an associate provost in 2017. You're not a typical academic, though, and you've taken lots and lots of risks over your career and you've been prepared to endure feedback, if I can use that um, expression. I feel like I should be putting air quotations around it, feedback, about everything from your dress sense. You've been called difficult. Uh, You've been prepared to entitle academic publications, things like Trapped in the Aboriginal Reality Show, Rum, Seduction and Death, Dumb politics wins the day. These all seem to me the acts of a pretty fearless person. Are you fearless? Well, if you've had your life threatened from a young age, what is there to be afraid of, you know? So shoot me. (laughs) You know, what is there to, to worry about when, you know, I know that so many Australians do want me dead. The only dignified way to live in the face of that kind of hatred is to say, so shoot me. Do you really feel that, that people want you gone? I have actually, in the last few weeks, locked my Twitter account because of the uh, endless abuse and death threats. And, you know, I've been getting death threats since I've worked here at the University of Melbourne and previously at the Northern Territory University in the mail. I've had to say to my the people I work with, please don't destroy those letters. I'm not afraid of them. I want to collect them and publish them all. And so, actually, my colleagues 
do collect them and hide them from me because they think I'll be upset about it. I'm not in the least upset by it. I've spoken to other women leaders on this podcast who have had death threats come in by Twitter, uh, rape threats in extraordinary numbers, you know, hour by hour, more and more and more. And it's clearly been documented that this the online environment is a much less safe one for women, that this is what happens to women who step into the public square. In your case, how much is racism How much is sexism? Would a male academic who did exactly the same things, had lived the same kind of life and was doing the same things as you do each and every day be getting that volume of abuse or would it be different? I don't know of any men, I've never heard of any men getting the the death threats and abuse that women get and I'm pretty sure that the entanglement of racism and misogyny in the death threats and abuse that I get, both written to me in letters, by email, on paper, sent by Australia Post, on Twitter. I think I, you know, if you were to rank the the women victims of this kind of abuse, I'm certainly, I'm pretty sure, in the top 50 in Australia. I've never really asked other women you know, how much abuse do you get? <laughs> Two a day, three a day, four a day? Because I think, you know, sensibly we don't talk about this amongst ourselves. We'd rather talk about much more pleasant subjects. Well, I really would like to ask Noel Pearson, Patrick Dodson, Mick Gooder, Mick Dodson, other male leaders, Aboriginal male leaders, do they get the hate mail that I get? Do they get the death threats that I get? I've never asked them. But again, I think amongst Aboriginal people, we all suffer abuse of various kinds and at at different scales. And again, we don't talk about it much amongst each other because, you know, life wouldn't be worth living if that's what our conversations consisted of. But I must one day ask them, because I really don't believe that they get the scale and extent of the abuse that I get. I, I don't think that's the case. I do know of another Aboriginal woman and I won't name her, who actually had to have uh, police protection for years because of the death threats against her. So, as I say, I'm pretty sure I'm in the top 50, along with a lot of other women. I don't believe that men get this kind of abuse. And it's interesting, isn't it, that racism and white supremacy and misogyny are entangled in the way that they are. And if you look at, you know, the prime shock jock motivators of this kind of hate on radio and television, they have a very clever way of entangling, you know, very base, uninformed, not to say dangerous ideas in such a way that, you know, they whip up a kind of public sentiment that's expressed towards particularly women. And you yourself have been a victim of that and very publicly so. And, you know, that was, I think, distressing for any woman in Australia who has a scintilla of feminist belief. So, you know, I'm sure that you know what I'm talking about. I I do, I do. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You have sort of defied characterization on the political spectrum. Everybody wants to do political analysis and put people on a spectrum ranging from left to right, but you've had your criticisms of both sides of politics. You've had some public disputes, including, for example, with Jermaine Greer, who's another public intellectual, originally from Australia, though obviously lived a lot of her life overseas. How do you think about your own politics? Does it defy that conventional political spectrum? I learned at a young age to think rationally, to investigate, to rely on the evidence and to reject Kant. You know, belief systems can be very dangerous. We must always, I believe, interrogate our circumstances, be it policy, legislation, our institutions. And so... You know, I've often said things that people find shocking, but they find it shocking because they don't actually know what our social security system consists of, or they don't know how much Aboriginal communities, especially in rural and remote areas, are the deliberate targets of the alcohol industry and how damaging alcohol is to the Aboriginal population. I was pilloried for calling it on the ice epidemic. People are simply not aware that ice is marketed across Australia by drug dealers and that Aboriginal communities are targeted. So people think I'm mad and crazy. And then guess what? Mm -hmm. They find out that I'm not lying. I'm not saying these things lightly. I'm an anthropologist. I go to these communities. I sit and watch day and night and I see what goes on. And I don't say these things lightly. What do you think contemporary feminism gets right and what does it get wrong? Well, you mentioned Germaine Greer. We only need to look at her to see what can go wrong. She intervened in the Aboriginal debate at a time when some of us were trying to draw attention to the rates of violence against Aboriginal women and children. And she sided with the left, so-called left, who denied that there was violence against Aboriginal women and children who denied that there was child abuse, including both violence and sexual assault, and in addition to that, child neglect. And she actually wrote or spoke in one of, and I've cited her in one of my essays, in which she says that the Aboriginal men of tomorrow will not forgive me or think kindly of me for saying the things that I said. Well, I have no regrets. And the Aboriginal men who have been very angry about what I've said really need to have a look at their own attitudes because I don't believe that it is any longer possible to deny the rates of violence against Aboriginal women and children. And if Aboriginal men want to deny that, then they're complicit as far as I'm concerned. If you see an act of violence help those people, go to the police, go to the social services, whatever is appropriate in the circumstances, but do not deny it. Now, Jermaine Greer sided with the so-called left. I, I, I just regard them as, you know, deluded hipsters, really. They're not really left. There's nothing left-wing about them. These are the same people who think that it's uh, horrendous that one should advocate for jobs for Aboriginal people. 
I grew up in the old-fashioned left, which wanted jobs for everybody. That's the hallmark of being left. Fair work, fair wages. The left of today think, you know, that having a job is a crime against humanity, especially a crime against Aboriginal people to advocate for jobs. Most Aboriginal people say to me that they want their children to have good jobs. I'm only advocating for what most Aboriginal people say to me. And I didn't learn this from a pamphlet on the campus of the Sydney University. I learnt this in Aboriginal communities by sitting down and listening to people. This is what Aboriginal people want. They want jobs. They also want the violence to end. And I don't regret in any way calling it on the violence, the drugs, the alcohol. There's no point in pretending, as many people do, that real life in an Aboriginal community is all, you know, harmony and birds and rainbows. There's absolutely no point in that. Lives are at stake. If we are going to progress as Indigenous societies, then, you know, we need to be part of the economy. We need to innovate. Uh, We need to have safe communities. We need to have respect for each other. We need to end the violence. And I've been very firm about all of that. And if people hate me for it, that's their problem, not mine. I know that most Aboriginal people who do actually live in the real Aboriginal world appreciate my efforts. And they say, thanks for saying that, Marcia. You stood up for me. Keep doing it, girl. I'm still called girl. I don't know why, but anyway. Because yeah. <laughs> I'm not 90 yet, but anyway, not far off. I think if you're uh, happy to be referred to as girl, then that's okay. It's just, you know, we don't want to be referred to as girl when it's dismissive, when it's nice and supportive, that's okay. Well, I think what they really mean, they leave out the old. They mean old girl. In, in <laughs> Aboriginal English, old girl is, you know... You know, quite a compliment, really. It means uh, the getting of wisdom. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that wisdom. And I want uh, now to move to a standard uh, section of questions that I ask in this podcast. We always ask someone to respond to a fact. The fact for you uh, is a particularly tragic one. It is from a UN Women report, and it says that in Australia... Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women and girls have an adolescent birth rate nearly five times more than the population generally and are twice as likely to die as a result of pregnancy and childbirth. How do you respond to that? Well, it's one of those facts that drives me. There's no denying it. The life of many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander women, young women, teenagers is, as I said, marked by violence and abuse. And those statistics are the outcome of the violence and abuse that I speak of. We have a long way to go before Aboriginal women and girls are treated with respect and feel safe. That's absolutely right. What's the worst misogyny you personally have had to deal with? Difficult to say, really. It's so constant and it's so astonishing. It kind of blurs into a kind of nightmare, which I park over in the do not deal with this basket, you know, file, do not return to this. There are some truly horrendous circumstances that I've found myself in. But, you know, to look at the funny side of it, I think is more helpful. When gender diversity and uh, diversity and representation started to become an issue, back in the late 70s in in Australia, you know, with the human rights, I'd put my hand up to be on a committee and people would say, oh, no, 
you can't be the woman representative because we've already got a woman representative, but you can be the Aboriginal representative. <laughs> or if there were already, if there was already a woman and an Aboriginal person on the committee, I couldn't be included because they already had a woman and an Aboriginal person. And so, you know, there's this very perverted way in which people can be actually dismissed by diversity politics. And again, it's that entanglement of gender and race or ethnicity. And, you know, if you're a, a tough woman, and many Aboriginal women are tough because we grow up tough, you have to be tough to survive, then you're thought of as less female. And actually, it's that systemic kind of attitude, which I can't explain, I can't yet explain adequately, that I find most puzzling. Say, for instance, what happens on a regular basis that a a white man will open a door for a white woman and I'm coming along and the door slammed in my face because I'm not a woman and I open the door for myself. <laughs> you know, just little things like that. You see it all the time. and all Because people are intellectually putting you in this category of Aboriginal Australian leader, and this is very true of leadership generally, I think, people associate it with more male characteristics. So somehow you take on that more male perception in their head because they correlate masculinity and leadership. Is it male or is it a way of dehumanising us? See, that's the question I can't answer yet. I'm still thinking about that one. But I do notice, I would prefer at the moment, I think, I'm on the side of dehumanisation to think of the way that people, perhaps unconsciously or in a you know subconscious way, dehumanise me degenderize me because they can't disentangle the, the the racism and sexism and basic hatred of me. I think it used to be the case here and less so now when I'd go to a meeting at the university, I'd notice that a lot of the women in the room would grab their handbags like I wanted to steal their handbag. So I had a joke for a while when I was speaking at meetings. I'd say you can all put your handbags down now. I actually don't want yours. I bought myself a, a Prada and a and a Louis Vuitton and, and I'd hold it up and I'd say, see mine? I don't need yours. Um, you know, there's just all these little daily indicators that people don't treat me in the way that they treat their other colleagues. And young Aboriginal people, they come to me quietly and they say, why does this happen? What's that about? And they want me to explain it to them. We end up having very interesting conversations because so much of this behaviour is inexplicable. It's not normal to treat people like this. African women get it worse than I do. I see the way they're treated. It's appalling. I have a few African friends and I, again, we don't talk about it much, but I, I read their Twitter accounts and what they have to say on Twitter is is highly instructive because they're asking the same questions that I've asked all my life. You know, Australians kind of rank people by race in a subconscious way. Asians are less threatening than Aborigines. And I'm not sure where Africans stand in the in the scheme of things since, uh, you know, Peter Dutton's call out on so-called African gangs. But at one time, especially when I was younger, Africans were seen as less threatening than Aborigines. And I think that's flipped with the nasty debate about Africans that was provoked by Peter Dutton's entirely false statements, which even the police here in Victoria deny. And also, of course, 
watch the way the debate about Muslims has proceeded. There's a joke in the Aboriginal world, it's not us this week, it's the Muslims. So, you know, the media flip-flops between enemies, specified enemies. One week the enemy will be Muslims, another week it'll be Africans, then it's back to Aborigines, and it's like they're spinning a chocolate wheel. It's highly evident or noticeable if you're in one of those categories, which one of us has been picked by the commentariat. If you had the power, you know, one day there was a 24-hour period where you could snap your fingers and make anything possible, what would you change for women? Wage equality, which I think is the outstanding task of feminism. Women are still earning less than men, even though the figures show that we're becoming more educated than men. So wage equality, number one. And number two is actually about childcare and work-life balance. I think feminism is criticised unfairly by the right-wing commentariat for giving women the idea that you can have a work life and have children. Well, of course you can. Women do that in their tens of thousands, not to say millions, um, and always have because most of the world's food is produced by women and yet all of the children in the world are birthed by women. Funny that. But I do think that in you know, the fourth industrial revolution, we could, we could make raising children easier. And I think that could come about through reforms in the education system. I've been reading a bit about the Finnish, the Finland education system, where children are given breakfast every morning so that every child has enough nutrition to participate in the school day. And I think that's essential. You know, we have a, a, an increasing problem of polarisation wealth polarisation in Australia, so a growing divide between the poor and the wealthy. And, you know, many Australian children of all ethnicities are going hungry. And I do think that we need to reform our school system so that all children can participate equally. We need to ensure that there's early childhood education for every child and just make life a bit easier for those women who have children and also have to work to support them. Virginia Woolf says the only advice that one person can give another about reading is to take no advice, to follow your own instincts, to use your own reason, to come to your own conclusions. Marcia Langton says... I don't always believe the book reviews because I've learnt the hard way that uh, you have to read a book for yourself to make an assessment of it. But I do know that by about page five, a book is readable or not. (laughs) That's a great piece of advice. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you very much, Julia. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with King's Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We'll come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.